We're studying the book of Acts in our Sunday morning services, and last week, Jeremy really helpfully unpacked Acts chapter 15 for us with a look at how the early church wrestled with some key questions about how to follow Jesus. This week, we'll be looking at the end of chapter 15, that's Acts 15, verse 36 onwards. So would you join me there in your Bibles or electronic Bible devices now? That's Acts chapter 15, verse 36. Whilst you're finding that, this morning, the topic is that we're looking at a moment of failure for the great saints that we admire so much, an argument that changed their ministries. So, why did they fall out, and what can we learn from it? The verses will also appear on the screen here in the English Standard Version. Let's dive right in. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul also came to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This morning's passage isn't the apostles' finest hour. Here, Paul, the hero of the early church, one of the main character focuses in the book of Acts, and Barnabas, the son of encouragement and everyone's favorite godly bloke, have a nasty falling out. So this morning, I want to talk to you about imperfect leadership. Imperfect followers of Jesus. Imperfect evangelists. Imperfect preachers, even imperfect pastors, if you could believe such a thing. <laughs> of course, you may be thinking, now, Jim, you don't need to tell us that leaders in the Church of Christ are imperfect. We've met you. <laughs> and you'd be absolutely right. But for your encouragement and mine, it turns out God uses imperfect leaders. Cracked and broken vessels even to carry such powerful and glorious light as his, and to build his kingdom here on earth. It turns out that we shouldn't place on a pedestal anybody but Jesus. That well-known worship leader, preacher, writer, pastor, theologian, Christian celebrity, is human too, and is not worthy of our worship, however subtle. And in saying this, of course, I'm not attacking anybody. I don't want to bring anybody down, 
But I want Christ's church to rise up. Because friends, if you've taken the message, even unconsciously, that you're not good enough, that you're not useful to God, then this morning is a loving nudge to your heart that Jesus can use even you. And a loving prod to your guts that you might need to step up and do something about that. We pick up today's passage in Acts chapter 15, actually a verse before in verse 35, with Paul and Barnabas teaching and preaching in the church in Antioch. That's where they were based. Teaching, roughly, growing disciples. Preaching could be translated evangelizing, sharing the gospel. So they're discipling and evangelizing, if you like. And then, in, Paul, in verse 36, rather, Paul turns to his mate, his old buddy and missions partner Barnabas, and says, Barney, mate, it's been about six years, scholars reckon, since we did that tour of Turkey and told them all about Jesus. Let's go and check in on some of those cities we preached in, those churches we planted. Let's see how they're getting on. Barnabas turns to his BFF Paul, his trusted right-hand man in mission, his co-defender of the Gentile Christians amongst the Jerusalem Church Council. Barnabas turns to his busy mate and answers along the lines of, Paulos, Saulos, me old marker. Great shout. And do you know... I, I don't know what translation this is. And do you know what makes a missions trip? Taking an intern. Got to give him some experience. Grow the young'uns in ministry, eh, Paulos? <laughs> ah, but this is awkward. Barnabas pitches taking a lad called John Mark with him, who's Barnabas's cousin. And that would be fine, except this isn't John Mark's first missions trip. He actually went with Paul and Barnabas to that exact area that he's talking about going back to on their first journey there, and he bailed right at the beginning and sailed home instead like Alistair coming with me to the care home, having a look at it and turning his guitar case right back round and getting back in the car. Paul says, no way, mate. We need a reliable team. We can't risk flaky missionaries who are going to leave us in the lurch. And Barnabas says, you're not thinking like a disciple, Paul. You've got to take them with you. Invest in them. You've got to hurt the manure, Paul. <coughs> and it goes badly. The Greek word that Luke uses in Acts verse 39 to describe this argument that some Bibles translate as a sharp disagreement has the sense of cutting, a jabbing argument, a wounding that provoked angry and bitter responses. And they part ways. Paul in verse 40 chooses Silas who we're introduced to in Acts 15.22 as a leader, if we can click on just one, thank you so much, as a leader in the Antioch church. And then in Acts 15 verse 32, we're told he's a prophet as well. So, Paul chooses Silas and is commended by the grace of God. Together they go through Cilicia, thank you, and Syria and they visit the churches in southern Turkey. Barnabas, by contrast, just a verse above here, takes his cousin Mark over to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from. Now, we don't know why. Maybe it's a case of, come and stay with me for a bit, and we'll rest up, have a bit of a retreat, John Mark. Or maybe even it's, hey, John Mark, let's you and I go visit the churches in Cyprus that we preached in in Acts 13 before you bailed, and check in on those whilst Paul's checking in on the other ones. 
I think if you click, we might even have a map. Oh, would you look at that? So Paul and Silas go on the solid line up there, and Barnabas and John Mark tag out and get a boat to Cyprus. Great. Whatever the motivation was, whatever Barnabas was doing taking John Mark that way, whether it was for a rest or another missions trip, either way, it's a bit of a bust-up between Paul and Barnabas. So I think it's worth this morning taking a look at Paul and Barnabas, why they fell out, and whether there's anything that we can learn in our own relationships with God today. If we can click on two slides, brilliant. In the style of a snazzy church website, let's meet the team. Clicking on one, Paul. Now this is not an original photo, but it's the best likeness I could find online. We could spend years looking at Paul's life and ministry, and we will certainly fail to do it justice this morning. But to offer you just a word or two of insight, if you've not come across Paul before, his story of serving God bravely in the face of opposition, miraculously with healings and prophetic words, and faithfully, amazingly faithfully, when things were just so hard, his story is most of the story of the bit of the Bible that we call the book of Acts. If you want to find out more about him, I recommend this book by N.T. Wright for an overview of Paul's life. And even better, this book called The Bible that's also widely available. (laughs) Paul is a go-getter, gospel-guided preaching powerhouse, and he's going to make sure that the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth, even if it means he's taking it there himself. And that churches are planted in every city he goes anywhere near, even in the face of fear opposition, fierce opposition. For Paul, the truth of God is above every false claim that is on people's lives. And the mission to point people to Jesus is his main powerful motivation. Driven. Get the gospel out there. Let's click on one. Barnabas. This is not an original photo, but it's the best likeness I could find online. We are first introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 to 37. Would you click on one for me, please? Thank you. Sorry, you can go back to Barnabas later. The facts we're given about Barnabas in Acts chapter 4 are that he is a man whose actual name is Joseph, who the apostles renamed Bar-Nabas, the son of encouragement, and we meet him making an act of huge generosity to the church. I love this guy. If encouragement had a son, this would be him. What a nickname. And generous, too. This man's heart is well and truly pointed outwards to do what he can to build up the people around him. A bit later on, in Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, we meet Barnabas again as the one who was brave enough to take a risk on new Christian Paul, when the rest of the apostles thought it was a trap. Barnabas goes, takes the risks, meets Paul, hears his story, and then vouches for him before the rest of the apostles. He took a risk on this man who would go on to take the message of Jesus to Europe and write most of the New Testament. As a result of Barnabas' risk on dodgy Paul, Paul stayed with the apostles and was boldly preaching for Jesus around Jerusalem, which must have been mind-blowing for anyone who had seen how dramatically Paul's life had changed 
from Christian persecutor to Christian preacher. Barnabas' faithfulness to God and his risk on Paul bore huge fruit for the kingdom of God. Next, in Acts 11, verse 22, when the apostles in Jerusalem hear that there's a church in Antioch that's growing amongst non-Jewish people, it's Barnabas they send to go and investigate. He's trusted as their representative to discern, is this Jesus at work or not? And verse 24 pays him a particular compliment. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. What a thing to have said about you. What a thing to have the Bible say about you. What a legacy. What a lad. <laughs> Barnabas delights in the work of God amongst the Gentiles, even whilst that's still controversial. He sees God at work, and he celebrates it. And he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose, and, still in verse 24, a great many people were added to the Lord. It looks to me like that's a direct result of Barnabas' presence and his encouragement. Barnabas was an encourager, but his encouragement wasn't just nice, it was effective for the kingdom of God. Barnabas is an empowerer, an encourager extraordinaire, a risk-taker on the unpromising outcast, a reach-down rescuer of questionable candidates for the kingdom of God. If you had messed up, or if you came from a dodgy background, it's Barnabas who you'd want to meet you outside the church and walk you into the building. He's loved by the leaders. He's trusted, holy, good, and he's all about giving the unlikely a chance and a second chance. After Barnabas is falling out with Paul, he's not mentioned again in Acts, and he drops off the New Testament radar, except... Let's take a quick look at John Mark's profile. This is also not an original photo, but this is probably closer to it than the other ones are. We first meet John Mark in Acts 12, verse 12. Not for his own sake, but because it's his mother's house that the disciples are meeting in. Waiting and praying earnestly for Peter to escape from prison. Do you remember that amazing story of the angel leading Peter out of the prison? where Peter thinks he's in a dream, and then there's the comedy story of him being taken to the safe house, getting to the place where he needs to get to, knocking on the door. The servant girl comes and answers, recognizes that it's Peter, and runs back to tell everyone, leaving the fugitive stood in the street. Yeah? Comedy gold in Acts chapter 12. Would you click us on, please? Thank you. Here we go. That was John Mark's house. Well, it was his mother's house, but presumably she'd cleared up the Xbox and the Lego out of the way first for the secret <coughs> prayer meeting. He shows up a little later in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, where John Mark is mentioned giving Paul and Barnabas, uh, joining Paul and Barnabas, rather, as they travel up from Jerusalem to the church in Antioch. And two verses later, in Acts 13, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are commissioned by the Holy Spirit to go off on their missions trip. I wonder, was that a surprise, or was that trip something they'd had a sense was coming? Did Mark know that going with his cousin up to Antioch would lead to traveling the eastern Mediterranean, preaching the gospel and planting churches. We don't know. But either way, John Mark goes with them, not as one of the named missionaries, you'll see in verse 1 here, but as a traveling companion. 
in verse 2 here, but as a traveling companion, an assistant, a bag carrier, an important member of the team, though. His next mention after this is in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, when Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is in Cyprus, and come to Perga in Pamphylia, southern Turkey, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's the moment that causes Paul and Barnabas' argument. And that might have been the last mention of little missionary John Mark in the Bible, except for a couple of little ones later on. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul's in prison in Rome, and he requests John Mark by name, saying he's very useful to me for ministry, which is a pretty high compliment from strict and driven Paul. And we can see that Mark went to Rome. He did answer this request and go, because when Peter writes his first letter from Rome, or what we call 1 Peter, he mentions John Mark is with him. Babylon here is code for Rome. Marcus, my son. It's a lovely sign that later on in their lives, Mark went back to Paul. There wasn't an issue. They were, they were reconciled. Oh, and there is one other bit in the New Testament where we find evidence of John Mark. He wrote one of the four Gospels. In fact, the first Gospel, which both the Gospel of Luke and Matthew have based their whole Gospel accounts on, borrowed from extensively, which is a pretty good legacy to leave in the New Testament. <laughs> John Mark's gospel, which we usually call the gospel of Mark, is widely considered to be Peter's accounts of Jesus' life, which means John Mark having to spend a significant length of time with Peter, recording his memories of what Jesus said and did, the debates with the Pharisees, the encounters he had, which allows me briefly to share one of my favorite facts of the New Testament. You know how Peter is the doofus disciple? He's the one who's always getting it wrong. Always the gobby one who speaks too quickly. He puts his foot in it. He makes the stupid, arrogant move. It's all right, Peter, I'm with you, brother. He allows his pride to get in the way of seeing Jesus, who he is and what he's doing. We get that story, via John Mark, from Peter. Peter's legacy to us, through John Mark writing his gospel, is a picture of Peter who is utterly humbled. Wise Peter. Humble Peter. He's shown us how low, how rubbish he is, so that we can take courage that whatever our own discipleship in Jesus looks like, Peter's gone before us in the messing it up, letting Jesus down stakes. God bless Peter. So how did John Mark get access to Peter? Well, maybe he knew him. Maybe he was introduced. How did John Mark get the courage and dedication to take on putting together the first written gospel. Maybe he had a confident sense of that calling, or maybe he was encouraged. Do you see where this might be going? I think John Mark's cousin Barnabas may well have had a hand in John Mark's work. Seems to me that Barnabas was a significant part of Paul's story, and without him, we may not have had the church in Europe, or certainly not the way it went. And we may not have had the letters Paul wrote, and with them, a significant chunk of our New Testament. And without Barnabas' encouragement and support of John Mark, his strong standing with Peter and the Jerusalem church, John Mark may have even run away from failed ministry and Pamphylia into obscurity, rather than decide to take on the mission of writing that first gospel. 
without John Mark, sorry, without Barnabas's influence on John Mark, might we have only had the Gospel of John with no Mark and therefore no Matthew, no Luke? Did the Lord use that time with Barnabas and Mark sailing away together, having some quiet time to give Mark the encouragement he needed? Is Barnabas and his encouragement and his strength and his good standing behind most of the New Testament as we know it? It's a question we're not going to know the answer to this side of heaven. But I'm not going to rule it out. Back to today's passage. John Mark had proved to be a liability, and this is the cause of Paul and Barnabas' falling out. John Mark was a letdown, an important member of the mission team who ran away right as it was getting started. His departure must have disappointed Barnabas, who'd taken a risk on him and was his cousin, but it really got to Paul. This wasn't a mission trip with sightseeing passengers. They needed every member of the team to be all on board and pulling together, ready to face the angry crowds, the abuse, the flying rocks that might come their way. John Mark bailing out early days was a serious blow, and Paul wasn't going to jeopardize another mission by letting John Mark come with them, only to be constantly wondering whether or not he was going to stick it out or leave the church in the lurch just as things were getting tough. Barnabas, on the other hand, he sees an opportunity to give John Mark a glorious second chance to invest in a young potential leader, to mentor a future key figure in the church, even if he was a bit rough around the edges. Aren't we all? It came down to, we can't take a risk that could undermine kingdom mission, versus we can't grow the kingdom without taking risks on leaders. Two opposing views that are really valid, actually on how to carry out the mission Jesus gave us to build his kingdom. It's an open secret that in this church we love to train leaders. We love to urt de manure leaders, which is the vineyard's comical non-acronym for how we want to grow and multiply our ministries. Urt de manure. We want to identify, recruit, train, deploy, monitor, nurture, and release. Thank you so much, tech team. Although, I might have guessed it and it looked really impressive if you'd saved it one second. <laughs> Thanks, guys. We want to follow this process as we look for new leaders to grow and invest in so that we can grow the kingdom of God whilst growing the church's capacity to minister to the growing kingdom of God. We love to build leaders. And we do so with imperfect people, which is all we've got. We have to Barnabas it out to take risks on people, to give people a chance, maybe two, maybe three. And I can tell you, I have had so much grace and so many chances taken on me. You'll see people leading worship for the first time in Kingdom Vineyard, leading KV Kids sessions for the first time, preaching for the first time, leading Bible studies and home group for the first time, designing and leading 24-hour prayer events for the first time, running the hosting teams for the first time, running tech teams for the first time. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. Sarcastic clap from the front row. It's good. That was for you. You'll generally see members of this church's leadership looking around for those who have gifts that God has given to people, identifying them, 
giving them the chance to step out and have a go, training them, and letting them have a crack at it. We love to build up and release new, gifted servants of Jesus in all areas of church life. It's in our DNA as a church planting movement that we earnestly desire to see more and more local churches and to see people grow in their love for Jesus and grow in their gifts as they serve him. So if you're sat there thinking, hang on a minute, no one's asked me to lead anything. Well, friend, talk to your home group leader. Let them know what you want to have a go at. We run formal training for home group leadership twice a year. We run worship circle events that we advertise to the whole church every few months. Our home group leaders are always looking for people who'd like to have a go at leading a Bible study or leading worship in home group. We want to give imperfect people a chance to have a go at serving God. And actually, that's one of the things that I love most about this church. I can say it with such pride, not because it's anything I've done. This was the culture that I was welcomed into when I came and sat on the seats and was thinking, I'll give these guys a sniff and see if it works out. As a student here in 2008, I was asked to lead a home group. I was kicked out of a lovely core church home group at Phil and Fiona's house. I only fell asleep the one time, but apparently I snored. And they made me a student leader in this church. I was invested in. I was given access to the leaders and to talk with them about decisions that this church took. And I thought, wow, this church is honestly seeking after God and willing to give chances even to little wretches like me. I got Barnabas. I got identified and encouraged. I had some risks taken on me. They even let me preach. They let me preach on solitude and silence. It was ace. And then Toby and Carol went away for the weekend, so I stood up here on my own. <laughs> Probably was not very good, and we've deleted all the sermons from that time by accident. <laughs> I had some risks taken on me, as well as some discipline offered to me to help me grow. And now I have the privilege of serving the body of Christ, leading my favorite congregation in the whole world. We love imperfect leaders, and I can tell you for sure that I'm one. I suspect you knew. The body of Christ is full of people with character flaws and lives littered with mistakes, being used by God to do amazing things. Friends, please do not disqualify yourself. Jesus has prepared works for you to do that are handcrafted assignments created in advance for the places and the people that he's placed you amongst. Back to our passage, we haven't asked who was right in the Paul and Barnabas bust up. You might think, because of how much I've talked about investing in people and valuing imperfect leaders, that I'd be completely on Barnabas' side. But Paul has a point. And the Pauls amongst us are a real gift from God. Paul is driven. He's so focused on the importance of people needing to hear about God receiving humanity's savior. Or God sending humanity's savior. Humanity you know what I mean. If you don't, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to explain that one to you. Paul is so focused on people being introduced to Jesus that nothing else can get in the way. I think we could do with a few more of Paul's priorities in our everyday how many groups of people have we ignored, overlooked, this last week even? 
or even felt Jesus' nudge to go and tell them that there's a God who loves them and bailed out, got on the boat back to Jerusalem rather than go on that mission. I need a bit more of Paul's priorities in my mission, and I suspect a few of us do too. Barnabas was right. We need to take risks on new leaders and even give them second chances. Paul was right. We need to be committed to the mission of telling the world about Jesus and put him and his mission above everything else. Where they were wrong was to allow it to get to that vicious of falling out. What a tragedy. With the whole of that young church in Antioch looking to them as leaders, they should never have let it get that far. With patience and grace toward each other, and prayer and submission to God's Holy Spirit, might they have reached the same conclusion to split missions, to separate, take two halves of the mission trip between them, have Barnabas take on John Mark and mentor him, Paul take a new mission partner, and settle all of this with love and grace instead of a cutting disagreement. I'm convinced that Paul and Barnabas failed here, that they let the church down, that even those heroes of the Bible were imperfect leaders. God is so kind to us. He takes us on as imperfect disciples, even as imperfect leaders of his, and that he uses even us to build his kingdom. Even you, to share who he is with your neighbor, colleague, friend, or classmate. Praise the Lord for reassuringly bad examples, and Lord, take from us the excuse of our imperfection and call us to a holy and dedicated service of you even outside of our comfort zones. I've neglected the second half of our passage this morning. That's imperfect leadership, you see. I'm going to fail to do it just now, just, just this, just now. But there's a lovely example of investing in new leaders and the importance of mission above all things that I'll nod to as we prepare cabin for landing. At Lystra, six years before, when Paul visited it, uh, he had preached the gospel, and now when he returns, he discovers a young disciple, a young Christian, called Timothy. So Timothy gets adopted, well, there's Raising Sunday, isn't it? He gets taken on as a mentee for Paul to join in the mission, to follow and go out and serve. But Paul arranges for him to be circumcised. Well, hang on, doesn't this undo everything that we just heard last week in Acts 15? No, and I'll tell you why in a sentence. This had nothing to do with Timothy's salvation, with his standing before God. Timothy and the Lord were fine. Jesus had done it all, no circumcision needed. But for the mission, for the ability to go and speak to the Jewish people, as we read in verse 3, it's because of the Jews who were in those places who all knew that his father was a Greek that Paul arranged for Timothy to be circumcised. Let's take even the distracting stuff the objections people might throw at you out of the way so that Timothy can stand before them and say, no, guys, I'm one of you, and I tell you your Savior's come. But what a cost. Gentlemen in the room crossing your legs, would you, for the sake of mission, have gone, yep, scissors out? <laughs> too, I've got a too much face from the front row. <laughs> what a cost. For the sake of getting the mission out, Paul's drive, his priority for mission. Paul did what he had to do, and he asked Timothy to do what he had to do, to best be able to connect with the Jewish people in those places and introduce them to Jesus. If you're interested, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about 
To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Go and read that later, it's dead good. So, what can we conclude from our look at Paul, Barnabas, and Mark this morning? Through Barnabas, we can see that God uses broken people, as uses imperfect leaders, loves to see people raised up and stepping into new service for him. Through Paul, we can see that God uses imperfect leaders, that he takes our commitment to live for him, our focus, our purity on faithfully serving Jesus, and does astonishing things with it to build his kingdom. Through Paul and Barnabas' argument, we have an example that even our leaders can let us down. They needed to do better. The motivations were good, but they handled it badly. And even though God went on to work through them both, I'm sure that they needed to repent of their cutting fallout. The Lord tends not to pour out his presence on our hearts when we are holding them closed with bitterness. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul advises, Brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And through Mark, we can see that a failure in our past, even though it might have consequences, doesn't stop God using us amazingly in the future. Bring it to God. Give your whole self back to him. And who knows how powerfully he may end up using you. That's me. I think there's some stuff in there that some of us might want to respond to this morning, to take an opportunity to bring ourselves back to God. So as we move into our prayer ministry time, uh, I want to invite you that if there's anything that you'd like to respond to that the Lord may have nudged you about whilst I was speaking, then in a moment, come on down to the front, find a space, stand, and a member of our church will join you in just a moment and ask if they can pray with you. So why don't you stand just now? If you want to come forward as an act of reaching out to Jesus and confess, I'm a wretch, I'm imperfect, but I want you, there is a space for you here. If you want to repent this morning of something that you've handled badly or of a failure in your past, there is a space for you here. If you want to step up and say, Jesus, use me, I'm going all in for you, there is a space for you up here. And if there's anything else you'd like prayer for, physical healing, anything else, or even just a touch from God this morning. Everything's fine, but more of you, Lord. Then in a moment, come on down. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of imperfect leaders, for the encouragement that we don't have to have it all together before we step out and serve you. Thank you, Lord, for the challenge of meeting you, holding your hand, and jumping into the unknown to serve you. Would you come, Holy Spirit, speak whatever you want to into our hearts this morning. Come have your way. Amen.